Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. I get questions all the time about how do they support the podcast. You guys know I don't really do ad reads over here. And a great way to support the podcast is to use the affiliate links that you see in the description. Um, like if you shop on Amazon, Instacart, use my links when you do so. Also, BetterHelp offers 10% off your first month when you use the promo code Katie, that's K-A-T-I, when signing up. Those are just some great ways to support the pod. Also, just sharing it with someone. And if you're looking for a way to get your questions answered, if you like keep asking, and I know it's frustrating, I do my best to pick extras every week, but I do answer questions in my uh, YouTube memberships, as well as over on Patreon. There are different tiers depending on what you can afford. So you can hop over there and check that out too. Oh, and we have new merch. Look at this. Overthinking. My power is overthinking. I thought it was really cute. We have this great artist out of Por um, Portugal who creates these cute brains and we're working with him to try to do a puffer fish. So stay tuned. Okay. Let's get into today's questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie, what makes someone a quote unquote complex case in therapy? Is it a specific diagnosis or cluster of diagnoses? Or is it dependent on how the client presents? This is a great question. And I actually had to think about it a little bit because it was to call something or someone a complex case in therapy is really so, so varied meaning that it just kind of depends on what the clinician themselves believes to be co complex and other and another way of putting it I guess would be complicated. I know people might think that's more stigmatizing and more upsetting, but that kind of gives you an idea of what where I'm going with this. So when I have a complex case, what that means is maybe I'm not really sure about the diagnosis, maybe I'm having trouble um, pinning down the ones that I think are actually affecting them and there's like a ton of symptoms that can be complex a complex case can also be someone who has tried a bunch of medications and nothing's ever helped and the symptoms kind of change and you know morph over time that can be complex um but for me personally i'll speak to what i would call a complex case and that would be when I have a patient who is presenting with a lot of varied symptoms, but nothing that meets any specific criteria. So it's kind of difficult to know how to work on it first. And that's why I, I talk about the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Illnesses. It's created by the APA. It's not the best thing out there. We all know it's really frustrating when you don't quite meet criteria. It feels like you can't get the help that you need. Also, they're very slow to change things. I have a lot of problems with the DSM, but it's also very helpful. And here's where it's helpful, is that when I'm seeing a patient who's really having a tough time and really struggling, but we can't, I guess if they're, if they're really struggling, if I can put them into a box, and I'm using air quotes because like it, we all know everybody's different, but if I can say, oh, what I think this is, is bipolar disorder, then that gives me my first few steps toward helping them. 
So if I think it's depression, if I think it's an eating disorder, that all kind of guides the treatment that I'm going to offer and the tools I'm going to give them up front to kind of alleviate some of the symptoms as quickly as possible. Does that make sense? And so I find that to me, when I can't place them into a certain diagnosis, it can make it a little more difficult or complex when it comes to the treatment that I'm going to put together for them, the treatment plan as a whole. I also would call someone complex if they have a bunch of varying diagnosis, diagnoses that are kind of all over the place, you know, like I can have a patient who has bipolar disorder, but also struggles with self-injury and then has some panic attacks, right? And it's not to say that we don't see that very often, but it's just, it can make it more complex. Think of like a complex problem in math. We would call a complex problem something that just requires more steps or you have to do pieces at a time. You know, it just takes a little more effort. It doesn't mean difficult. It doesn't mean you're a burden. It doesn't mean that you can't get better. I honestly love a complex case because I think I see it of it, I see it as a challenge a little bit. And it challenges me to be a better therapist. It makes it so that I'm going home doing research on the best tools and techniques for these symptoms. Or if they have bipolar disorder, you know, self-injury and panic attacks. Are there tools that I can find for those three things that I know will be the most beneficial? Can I try to, you know, do my own research and what what I know? Again, it's applying my knowledge to what's out there to offer it the best to my patient. And so that's really what I would call a complex case. We've also had, I mean, I've had patients be called a complex case, especially with eating disorders when they they're very treatment resistant, meaning they've been in treatment, you know, let's say they've been in a treatment facility like seven different times and it keeps getting worse and, you know, the things that we're doing kind of work and then don't. Um, that can be complex case. But those are just kind of, it's not really a specific diagnosis or a cluster. It's more about the way it's presenting and the fact that it can kind of feel like it's it doesn't meet any criteria or it's really severe in one area and everything we're trying is not working. I'd like to think of complex as more like it just it's, it requires more of us. It's it's a little bit more complicated, and it's going to take more more focus, more more engagement from not only the patient but also the therapist. And so, it just really depends a lot on how the client presents, which I know is kind of a shitty answer, but hopefully that gives you an idea of what we as therapists would deem a complex case. And I guarantee. If you ask a different therapist, they're going to have a different type of answer, but I believe it always comes back to it just being more complicated, requiring a little bit more focus, effort, and maybe nuance, you know? No one, that's the cool thing, and the reason I love being a therapist is that almost every patient is going to be completely different from the one that I've seen before. They can share some symptoms, but everybody's so different, and that's what makes our job so cool because it you get, it's like an art form to be a good therapist, I feel like. And it makes it not boring at all. It's always changing and ever-changing landscape. And I personally love the challenge and I love, you know, I love what I do. So anyway, I hope that that gives you kind of a better understanding. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Actually, I'm, this is Monday now that I'm recording it. Um, it says, my question is about ruminating thoughts and negative thought loops. Ooh, mm-hmm. I constantly find myself in this thought loop in which I'm convinced that I'm lying about my problems to my therapist. Interesting. I have then, I have to then tell myself the facts and use evidence to explain that nobody would make these things up and no one would do this for quote unquote attention. That's good. That's great. 
What, why do I always feel like I'm making up my struggles? A couple of things. This is a great question, by the way. Um, when we struggle, th- there's a couple of pieces, okay? Let's start with one. When we have a trauma in our life, we've been traumatized, we struggle with PTSD-like symptoms. So we feared for our safety or the safety of someone we loved. We felt terrified by it, overwhelmed by what was happening. We're traumatized. Then we don't have the resources or um, resilience to kind of weather that storm and we develop PTSD. When that happens, along with it comes an urge to make sense of the nonsensical. What happened doesn't make sense. It could even it could have been you know, abuse from someone who's supposed to care for us. It could have been a horrific accident. It could have been any number of things, right? Medical trauma, they're supposed to take care of me, What, uh, right? And so when we try to make sense of something and we don't, there's no sense to be made, we blame ourselves. Hence, shame enters the room, right? So shame comes in and tries to tell us that everything that we're doing is because something's wrong with us. All of these symptoms we're experiencing is our fault. And we can get caught in this loop where we think that we're lying about our problems. It really wasn't that bad, right? Minimization, uh, invalidation, shame, they just hang out together, right? In this very toxic type of swirl. And I think that's what's catching you. So my hypothesis would be that this is like trauma-based. And as we work on our trauma, we will be able to fight our way out of this. So that's one piece. The second is something that you're doing already is a tool for fighting what I would call like anxious thoughts or rumination thoughts or negative thought loops. And that's the checking the facts and kind of arguing back like, why would anybody want to make this up? No one would want to make this up, right? That's great. And I'm glad that you're doing that. I also would encourage you within that to notice the repetitive thoughts that you have, the ones that come up over and over again. There's probably like five or 10 that are just like the same over and over. And they kind of probably start these cycles Let's pay attention to those, and I want you to bridge statement them out, meaning that when that thought comes in where it's like, well, you know what? It really wasn't that bad. I think you're making it into more than it was, or uh, remember, you didn't run away, so that's on you, right? Whatever these first few thoughts are, you always just need attention. Uh, you're so needy. You, you take up so much space. You ask for so much. You're such a burden. All these nasty negative thoughts, Right. I want you to pay attention to those. I want you to write them down and we need to bridge statement our way out of them. Meaning, I don't want you to try to think positively, using like air quotes positively, um, because positive thoughts don't, our brain's gonna be like, nope, I don't believe it. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to live in the like possibilities, the maybes, I'm open to, meaning that if one of our constant negative thoughts is, it was all my fault, I should have run away and I didn't, then I want you to, use a bridge statement that's something like, you know, I'm open to the belief that that maybe, maybe, maybe I was so young and Katie might be a little bit right about this, that, that it's possible I couldn't run away, but I think I could, but maybe I couldn't. We're just living in that like, it's possible. We've got to be open to potentially thinking differently. And it's in that possibility that we will feel so much better. Okay. So that's kind of that piece there. And then this is the third and final piece I want to talk about. Because you said, um, why do I always feel like I'm making up my struggles? That's really your question here. And along with the things that I mentioned, like the trauma background, I believe that that could be true. But also I find that sometimes, actually a lot of the time, and this is really shitty, but I find that we tend to repeat old stories that someone else told us that was really harmful. 
as we get older, we repeat these stories, meaning that if we had a parent who was like, oh, you're always so much and you're, you always just want attention and you're so needy, whatever kind of shit talking they did to us, we take that, even in the moment we're like, this is really hurtful and we might cry about it. We might, you know, stuff that, oh, stuff all that pain really deep, hide away, work out, harm ourselves, whatever. We take that. And unfortunately, when we get older, if we haven't worked through it, we tell that story to ourselves again and harm ourselves with it again. It's like one of those, one of my favorite quotes from, it's not a quote, it's a lyric from the postal service. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the song, but he says, your heart won't heal right if you keep tearing out the sutures. And that's kind of what we do with this. So when we have like a past pain and it was really hurtful, but we agree with it for some, for whatever reason, probably because it was told to us a lot. We've kind of been brainwashed or manipulated into believing that it's true. And we take that old story, that old pain, that old statement that we hated hearing that made us so angry and so sad. And we tell it to ourselves again as adults in a new way. And so my hypothesis with this is the reason that you feel like you're making up your struggles could be because someone told you that when you were younger. Someone in your life said, I think you're making this into more than it is. I think you're, you know, too much. You require too much. Why do you ask for this? You're too needy. You do everything for attention. We heard all these painful things and now we're telling it to ourselves again. And that could be why. And that's why a huge piece of our healing is going to be done in therapy as we kind of tease that out and process through that past trauma and possibly, hopefully, come to the realization that the person who told us this back then didn't know anything. They were dealing with their own shit. They didn't need to pile shit onto us, but they were bad parents or bad, you know, caretakers of whatever. It's not on us, it's on them. And we'll come to that realization and be able to move forward without the retelling of these old stories. I know it's hard. I know it takes time, but trust me, you're worth it and it will get better. But those are just some of the reasons I think this could be coming up. I also do believe that when we have ruminating thoughts or spinning thoughts out of control could be also linked to an anxiety disorder or OCD, right? Which is an anxiety disorder. Um, But those things can kind of get us caught. And so you might want to let your therapist know this is happening so that they can assess for those things and possibly refer you to a psychiatrist for medication, but also maybe cater your treatment so that it assists a little bit more with some of those anxious symptoms. Okay. Now, there's a comment on this that says, I have a question that's kind of related, but not really. I have ruminating thoughts that are more anger-based. I don't know how to explain this. Like, whenever my rights and boundaries get violated, I cannot stop ruminating about what an asshole this person is. I can't stop cussing them out in my head. And I have this rage in my body, and it feels like I'm going to destroy something. I'm so ashamed of this reaction. That's important. Remember that part part of me feels like I should go and apologize for taking up space. Let others do whatever they want with my body and then and let them speak as loudly as they want. I should be fine with it. But the other part that gets angry is almost proud. I love this question. Um it is related but it's a little different. Now, when we get ru- when we get caught in an anger spiral, this happens for a few reasons. And the number one, what I would say is the most common reason that we get stuck in an anger cycle is because we are not comfortable with our anger. I said it, I know. We stuff it deep in our gullet. We don't express it outwardly, we turn it inward. Like you said, you ruminate about what an asshole that person is. You cuss them out in your in your head. I'm not advocating for you cursing someone out on the street, but I'm just saying that we don't have a healthy outlet 
for our anger. And so it's steaming and brewing inside of us for a really long time. And so we need to find a way here. Here's my advice to move out of this. Okay. To move out of this. Um, it, or wait, let's pause, hit pause. Let's go back. Now that's one place it could come from is that we aren't comfortable with our anger. So we stuff it deep. Number two, this discomfort with our anger could come from the fact that growing up anger wasn't tolerated. Or if we showed any upset, we were abused or harmed or made to feel bad about it. Right. So it wasn't okay. That could have meant that we just grew up in a household, even like my household, where nobody really fought. So you don't really know how to deal with it, right? So anger, you're like, ooh, how to control. Hmm. So those are some of the main ways. And then I guess I'll probably put in a third in that like no one in your family ever demonstrated anger in a healthy way. So we don't even know how to express it. So we just stuff it deep because we're like, culturally, it's not really acceptable. People don't like confrontation. I'm just going to swallow it down. Okay. So now let's move back into how do we get out of this? So how do we get ourselves out of this like anger spiral? And the first thing that I want to encourage you to do is to find a way to set some boundaries in your life. Now, I know this doesn't always apply, but that's the first step. We need to figure out when we feel like someone's overstepped, when we feel like someone's violated a boundary of ours. We need to find a way to place those, to communicate those. Yes, I know it's horrible. And the person even said I should go and apologize for taking up space. I think we might have been told either through society, through our upbringing, that we're too much, that we shouldn't take up space, that something about us is wrong. Shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment, coming in to hang out. Um, But we need to find a way to assert ourselves. And this can be done in therapy where we role play and we practice. Remember, boundaries aren't... um, requests for behavior from someone else they're they're a way to let them know or inform them of what we're going to do if they keep doing something that's not okay like if you keep talking to me this way i'm gonna have to end the call or if you you know every time i come over to your house mom you pick a fight with me and that this keeps happening i'm I'm not going to come over as often it's really uncomfortable i don't like it you know those are some of the things we can say um obviously if it's safe and okay to say so boundaries don't always have to be communicated it's preferable that they are but some boundaries are communicated through a lack of communication meaning if someone's let's say it's our our sister we have a really toxic relationship with her if she's texting us a bunch of garbage we don't have to text back and then when she texts something normal like hey how was that event you went to then we can respond and so our in our, our inactivity or our lack of communication is the boundary Okay, so that's a piece of it. Then the second kind of piece to work ourselves out of this is to find ways to healthily express anger. I know. (sighs) There's even a book, it's very woman-based, and I don't love it, but it's helpful. And it's called The Dance of Anger. You can find it on Amazon. I think it's in my Amazon shop. Even just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's there too. But The Dance of Anger is, is helpful in it because it pushes us to get to know our anger. I also loved the artist way that workbook I did recently. I want to say it's like chapter four. So it's like the fourth week where we get into anger and rage. And it's very helpful and it's interesting. And I would encourage you today, if you have a chance, let's do what we what another workbook I'm doing calls a dirty dozen, meaning 12 finish the sentences. Okay, so the start of this sentence that I want you to finish is, I get so angry when people do, boom, and I want you to list it out then. So I want you to do 12 of those, the dirty dozen. I want you to do another dirty dozen that anger to me feels like. And then if you can, we'll do a third dirty dozen. So you can do these each day. 
And it doesn't take very long. Once you get going, you just cruise right on through. And the next dirty dozen I want you to say to fill out is anger to me could be helpful if it. Okay, let's see what we find. Sometimes doing those dirty dozens, like a quick rapid fire through it, tells us what we really believe about anger, how it's really experienced, and what we, we could even maybe just journal a little bit about like what I'm trying to express through my anger. Or when I stuff this anger in, what is it that I really wish I could express outwardly? We might not know, but it's okay to try to be curious. Ask those questions of yourself. You have the answers. We just don't always have access to it at the time. And so it doesn't hurt to ask, even if we come up with nothing, that doesn't mean we're a failure. We're just trying to get to know our anger. And I think finding healthy outlets for it is really, really important because anger is a healthy and wonderful emotion. I know we always think it's like icky and bad and we should stuff it deep, but anger is incredibly helpful for many reasons. Number one, anger tells us when our boundaries have been crossed or when something has been done to us that's wrong. Anger is protective. It comes to our aid when we feel really vulnerable or hurt or we're worried that someone's going to take advantage. So it's good. Also, third and finally, anger is activating. It can get us moving. Sometimes we need to be angry to make some change. We can be like, if that boss says one more thing to me and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go look for another job. Or you know what? I'm going to apply for that transfer. Or I'm going to, you know, um, apply for that promotion. I don't want them to be my boss anymore, right? Anger can be really motivating sometimes. So it's not a bad thing. The longer we keep thinking that it's a bad thing, the longer we'll stay caught in this kind of negative spiral where we just cuss people out and get angry and it's all internal and we have no outlet. I also really encourage people to write nasty letters and then tear them up. I don't advocate sending them to people, but it's a good way to vent it. It's a good way to get it out, okay? And... Yes, I think that's it. I think I I think I covered it. Okay, happy to do follow-ups. Let me know. Let's move on to question number three. And this question says, hi, Katie. Can true long-lasting progress be made without talking about the underlying problems that lead to my depression and anxiety? I've been in therapy for a few months now and each week, all we discuss are skills or things um, that went, went through, oh, that happened throughout the week and what new things I can try over the next week to alleviate some of the anxiety and get me less depressed without ever really talking about the whys behind the depression and anxiety. It has helped me a little, I guess, but it feels so superficial to me. And like all the things that have happened that led me here just don't matter. And it doesn't affect me today, which I feel it is. Has Have I just not given therapy enough to work? I love this question. And a couple of things. First of all, your therapist is doing a great job because when you, I mean, you said you've been for a few months, so we should be shifting into the deeper things. But initially the goal in therapy is to get you to a place where the symptoms are a little bit more manageable because I don't know if you guys remember, but I I've mentioned this a lot that like medication can help us get our head above the water of our symptoms so that we can actually participate more deeply in therapy. Now, in with that in mind, in therapy, we try to take the edge off at the beginning, get you kind of get that head above water a little bit with some tools and techniques to, to help better manage the symptoms so that then we can also sustain and be okay to, to talk through the tough things. Does that make sense? And so really what I think your therapist is doing is trying to help you now so that you don't feel like such shit all the time. But what you're wanting to do is to dig in deeper. And I would just mention that to them because I'd assume they just want to make sure you're okay enough to do that. 
they're offering tools and techniques, which is great, so that you have something to help you now. <clears throat> but what you're wanting to move into now that you like feel like, okay, I have some tools, I have some things, I can do these, it helps me feel a little bit better. You're like, now let's get into the real stuff. And just let them know that. They might still worry that the symptoms are too ever present to do that work. Because something that can happen when we dig into the whys behind our depression or anxiety is that our depression and anxiety can get worse at first. And so as a therapist, we always want to kind of protect you from that and make sure you have tools and techniques in place before we do that. So bring this up with your therapist. Let them know, hey, um, I'd really like to dive in, in deeper. I feel like I have tools for the week, but but I really want to get into like the root of why this is here. Why am I struggling with this? So that I can, you know, make it go away for the most part. Just let them know. They'll be like, probably say, oh, okay. You know, I just want to make sure you're okay. I want to make sure you had some techniques and tools to get you through. Um, because the truth about it is if we don't talk about the underlying issues, what's going to happen is then most of our time and our therapy and partially part of our life is going to be just the management of those symptoms. And that's not very enjoyable from my perspective. I believe a healthier, better outcome is to work on the root so that we aren't as triggered. We don't, the symptoms aren't as strong. We can see them coming. We can use our tools when we get stressed out. Like, like I said, nothing's ever going to fully go away because life gets stressful, things happen, our resilience gets lower, and the things that we're kind of predisposed for are going to come back just like a cold or the flu. If we always get bronchitis, you know, we're going to get bronchitis sometimes too. It doesn't make us immune, but it allows us to notice the symptoms more early so then we can like treat it and it doesn't hang around, right? And so yes, progress can be made, but not long lasting, not remission of symptoms, not what I think of as the goal of therapy. I don't believe that can happen if we're just treating the day to day. And I know some therapists might disagree. There's therapists who don't like to work on past stuff, but I believe the past dictates the present and it especially does that if we don't acknowledge it. It doesn't mean we need to spend our whole therapy time just talking about our shitty past and like what's happening and why we, we are where we are, but there does need to be an understanding of that so that we can process it through and make it irrelevant. It's kind of like that saying that I use all the time about Chesterton's fence. Like we can't just remove this fence if we don't understand what purpose it served. And so we can't try to get rid of our anxiety and depression because it serves a purpose for whatever reason. Maybe it's purely, you know, genetic. We have a predisposition. Everybody in our family has it. Okay, well then maybe medication's where we're going. But we need to understand that first. We need to at least acknowledge where it's coming from and why it's here. Because otherwise we try to rip out that fence and we're gonna put they're gonna put another one in, boop, right away. Right. And so we wanna really get to the root so that it, we can pull it out and we know that it's not really gonna come back. And if it does, we'll see it when it's barely peeking through the ground and we can take care of it then. I hope that makes sense. And there was a comment on this said, Katie, how about the opposite of this question? What if you only talk about why you feel depressed and are not given skills to work on? I also feel like therapy is not helping. That's why therapy is like an art form, right? It's a balance. Let your therapist know you feel this way, that you feel like you don't have any skills to utilize because th that's the problem with either extreme, right? If we only talk about the now and offer tools for the now, it doesn't actually alleviate the real root. And so it'll keep coming back and we're going to need more tools and we're going to need more skills. And it's going to feel like we're just like treading water, right? Now, if we only talk about the root and like why you're feeling depressed, but there aren't any skills, then you're going to feel like you're still treading water because the symptoms are so bad that every day just feels like shit and you don't know what to do with it. 
And so it's not really making it any better. We need a combination of the both and some balance. It's not just 50-50 because everybody's different, but it's going to be some type of balance of that. And so I really encourage you to, you know, let your therapist know, hey, I appreciate the fact that we're getting into the root of my depression and like why I'm feeling this way. But I also need some skills because man, my time in between sessions is terrible. It feels terrible. I don't feel like I have any skills to use. Could we get into some of those? Could I have some homework or some tools? Ask them. They should have them. All therapists know we were trained in school and most of the conferences and uh, CEUs or continuing education units or courses that I attend offer things like this. So ask them for it. Okay. And I also, if you're looking for something today and you're like, oh, my session isn't until next week, go to my videos about depression. Just look up depression, Katie Morton. At the end of videos, usually I offer some tools and techniques. Um, there's also a whole video about coping skills. So if you're just looking ways to like distract or process, go to 25 coping skills, Katie Morton on YouTube, and you'll find them there too. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, thank you for all that you do. Of course, happy to do it. It says, my question is, do you have any tips for sharing traumatic memories or details like childhood sexual abuse with your therapist for the first time? Okay. there's a bunch of add-ons on this. So let's just jump right on in. Now, The tips that I've offered before are things like writing it down and giving it to them, writing it down and reading it in session, emailing it to them if they allow for that, Um, texting them something to make sure that they bring it up. Um, Those are usually the ways that I would go about it first, because if it's hard to say it person to person, like looking them in the eye, saying it out loud, let's take a beat and let's try to think of an alternate, like alternate way of letting them know. Um, If they allow for emails, ask if you can email some information. I even encourage people to do, you know, the doorknob confession because they'll remember and they'll bring it up next time. But at the end of your session, you can be like, oh, hey, also, you know, I have some sexual abuse in my past I'd like to talk about later. Okay, bye. Right. We can do that. That's fair. People do that all the time. And it's because we don't know how to say it. It's really uncomfortable. And we don't want to talk about it right in that moment. (laughs) And that's okay. It happens all the time. So those are some tips and ways that you can start sharing it. Any of those, you know, could work. But one of the things that I do encourage you to start doing in general, for anybody out there who's struggling to open up or speak up or say the words of what took place, we can start by journaling, if it's not too triggering, about what happened. We could even just tell it to ourselves in our head. Again, if it's not too triggering, I don't want anybody, you know, being completely dysregulated, feeling out of control, but that can be our first step in. So we're journaling about it. We're writing about it. We're thinking about it. And then verbally practice saying it. There's something about the words coming off of our lips out into the space and hearing ourselves say it that can be so triggering and so overwhelming. Be like, go blank, right? So I want you to practice writing it, practice thinking about it, whatever feels safe, practice saying it out loud. Because then when we go to tell our therapist, it won't be the first time we've ever said it and we like dissociate or like black out or feel completely overwhelmed. I don't want anybody to have that kind of a response. Is it still going to be uncomfortable to talk about? You betcha. But in order to get it out so that it can be a conversation, so that it can be something we work through, those are just some of the ways to shake it loose. And then here's my final tip. Now, if all that sounds terrible and you're like, I can't do any of it, I encourage you to say, if you can, to your therapist, hey, Katie, let's say I'm your therapist. You're like, hey, Katie, um, I'm going to need more resources to calm my system down because there's stuff I want to share that I just can't. It's too much. It's too overwhelming. I get I get freaked out, get dysregulated. Can we work on some resourcing or some tools or coping skills? Ask for that. 
Again, I also have that video, 25 coping skills, but, and there's tons of resources in all my videos, but that could be another way because then we don't even have to say anything. We're just telling them like, Hey, I feel too, it's too intense. I can't, Oh, I can't talk about it. Right. Shut down. Boop. Um, and then they can help you. Okay. Now there's an add on. It said, do you have any tips on how to mention such topics? Just like the overall topic and no specifics or memories, et cetera, to friends. My friends know that my mental health struggles have to do with my childhood, but I haven't been able to tell them about the childhood sexual abuse yet. On the one hand, I'm afraid of how they might react as I can't stand pity at all. And on the other hand, I'm afraid that I might laugh when I tell them this actually has happened in therapy and that my credibility might suffer. In addition, I'm also afraid of triggering someone as I don't know if any of my friends might have gone through something similar. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. Um, okay. When it comes to friends, I mean, a lot of the same things are going to apply. We can practice saying it out loud. We can journal about it. We can talk about it in therapy and kind of prep ourselves for it. That's really the best when it comes to this. And then when it comes to worrying that you're going to trigger someone else, we can ask ahead of time. Say, you know, I know we've talked, oops, sorry, I hit the microphone, but we can say something like, I know that we've talked about my mental health struggles and you guys know it comes from my childhood, but um, I, I'd love to share more. I just don't want to trigger anybody if anybody else has some trauma from childhood. You know, are you guys okay if I share that? We can ask for, I know that that's like a big step too, because it's hard to even talk about it, but we can ask for their okay to move forward. Essentially, it's preventing us from trauma dumping, right? We're just making sure that we're all okay to move into this good, a-okay, poof, you know, and that's, that's great. And if they're really good friends, they're going to understand. And if they do have something in their past, they're going to be like, ooh, I don't know if I can handle that. And that's fair. We can say, I totally get it. I won't tell you about it. <laughs> you know, I won't do that to you. I don't want to be triggered. I don't want you to be triggered. Ta-da. But I think, um, I think that can help. And then my final tip for this is when it comes to our concern about how things could turn out, maybe they will react poorly. Maybe I will feel dysregulated. Maybe I'll laugh, blah, blah, blah. I want you to take some time and to play these scenarios out. So I want you to play out the scenario, like worst case, worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario. And the reason that we kind of play those out and see a CBT technique called playing it out. I think it's play it out till the end or play it out anyway, but play it all the way out because then we can kind of imagine what it would be like and we can kind of prepare ourselves for honestly any scenario, even though we're going to also acknowledge the most likely scenario. Because even if you laugh, they will probably laugh with you uncomfortably because they don't know what's happening. And then you get to say, sorry, sometimes I laugh when I get stressed out. Almost everybody can understand that. I can relate to that. I think everybody has laughed at an inappropriate time because we feel overwhelmed and we don't really know what to do. And that's laughing, crying. We just, we're like dysregulated. So practice saying that in preparation for the fact that if you do laugh, then you know what to say and you already thought about it and you can say it without thinking and we move on. And they're your friends. They're going to get it. If you said that to me, I would get it. Everybody would get it. So don't think you're going to be misunderstood or you know, the laughing is going to put them off and they're going to think something is wrong with you. We all know what that's like, but let's just practice communicating, playing it out. You know, there's ways that we can prepare ourselves so that we're set up for success. Okay. There's another add-on says, I think I'm starting to make peace with what happened to me as a child. I was molested by two men for three years. And the thing is that it continues to be something that's really hard to talk about, meaning that it's really hard for me to even pronounce the words when I'm referring to my own story. How can I get past that? I'm going through a, a stage in which I feel like I need to talk about the details and the specifics of what happened to me with someone. 
things that are in my mind every day. But even with my therapist, I can't even bring it up. I feel like talking about it will help me move on, but I feel like I don't have the space with anyone. Like the words can't even get out of my throat because I've already got, um, I've already got past the time to talk about it. Oh, there was a time limit? I didn't know. There's no time limit, okay? Like as if now it's too late. Like if now I'm exaggerating by wanting to process it again. Like it's too exhausting for people to hear me when I want to talk about that. Like if what happened wasn't that serious or that important, look at that shame and minimization. Like I should have gotten over it already. There's no time limit or time frame. I've had patients come and talk to me six months after abuse occurred or an assault happened. I've had patients come to me 20, 40, 60 years after an abuse happened, an assault happened. There's no limit on when we're supposed to process something or the time frame with which we're supposed to talk about it. Everybody's different. And just trust me when I tell you that your therapist is not going to judge you for it being in the past. I feel like that's like 99% of what we deal with is past experiences, past traumas, past overwhelms that we don't know how to cope with. I mean, even me and my own therapy, I'm grieving for the loss of my grandparents pretty intensely. And then it stirred up stuff with my dad who I lost over 15 years ago. Is there a time limit on that? If there is, I don't know. It, it has not occurred to me, nor has it occurred to any of my therapists over the years. So don't think that there's any limit, okay? And then a lot of what I mentioned before with the like practicing ahead of time, starting to journal about it, all of that can help help us get more comfortable. And I don't even know if comfortable is the right word because it's it's not that we're comfortable. It's like become more used to or aware of what happened and better able to communicate about it. Just writing it out, thinking about it, um, even just telling our therapist, hey, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, but I just feel so dysregulated. Can we work on some coping skills or resources so that I can stick through it and tell you about it? Like all those are ways for you to just to try to calm your nervous system down enough that you can get the words out of your throat. Like you feel like it's all stuck because we've been doing that our whole life, right? For however long since it happened, we've been stuffing this down. So we need to give ourselves an opportunity to to soothe, to feel okay enough to start talking about it. Um, So yeah, I hope some of those tools from before and now are helpful. Okay, hang in there. And again, there's no time frame. Another add-on says, I managed to share memories of childhood sexual abuse with my therapist via email, but I can't seem to talk about it. Even just trying to do so was too much. I curled up in a fetal position and couldn't think or do anything anymore. I feel so stuck because the memories, shame, the nightmares, et cetera, keep coming up and taking up so much space, but I'm not able to work through them. I used to deal with all of this by using my eating disorder. And despite trying healthy coping skills, my life seems to be falling apart. I keep doubting the memories, but it's even possible to make it up and then have such a visceral reaction to it as well as symptoms of PTSD. I don't know what to believe or do anymore. I'm so sorry. You're not making it up. Again, going back to what the person at the beginning said, like, why would I make those things up? Why would you make up something like that? Who would want to pretend that that happened? Who would want to have these responses, this PTSD, this visceral reaction? There's no way to to do that to yourself. You're not making it up, okay? Now, I'm proud of you for emailing your therapist. Again, I would let them know, I know I emailed you about stuff. If you're able even to say this, maybe this is what we prepare and like practice saying so we can say it. I emailed you this stuff. Um, I still can't talk about it. I think I'm just too dysregulated. I feel too overwhelmed. Can we work on some coping skills so that I can better manage? 
so that I can feel better enough to start talking about it. You're gonna have to work on some grounding techniques. Maybe that means we do full body shakes. Maybe there's some breathing exercises in there. Whatever works for you, you know, figure it out, try it out. We have to find some ways to calm you down because it's too overwhelming and you aren't supposed to push through. You had to curl up in the fetal position after the last time you, when you emailed, I don't want that to be your response. I want you to feel like you can talk a little bit, maybe, maybe two sentences, and then maybe we have to take a break and calm down. You know, let your therapist know that it's super dysregulating. You're overwhelmed and you need to have some tools to help calm your system down so you can push forward because otherwise we're frozen in this like trauma, response slash dysregulation slash just complete overwhelm, right? And I want you to feel like you can do this and work through it. And I know it's it always gets worse before it gets better. I'm proud of you for not using your eating disorder. I know that our unhealthy coping skills, unfortunately, tend to work, you know, quote unquote, work better in the moment, even though obviously they cause us a lot of issues down the road. Um, but we will get you to a place where we have other cope. We need other things to replace that eating disorder urge so that we feel okay. We need some ways to, to calm your nervous system down. So give some stuff a try. Talk to your therapist. Ask them for resources. Say I'm just too dysregulated. And hopefully they'll help you be able to manage and push through. Okay? Another add-on says, I've really been struggling with memories coming up now that I've started EMDR. That's totally normal. It is so difficult for me to trust that these are real memories of past sexual assault or sexual abuse. It's essay. I'm not sure. Because until now, I had no recollection of the events. How do I talk about this in therapy when I'm still telling myself it didn't happen or I'm still desperately trying to push it away? I've gotten so good at numbing and avoiding. It makes every session so difficult. When we bring up things up in therapy, we don't have to agree with them and say that they're true. You're not making these up, by the way, but I know that me saying that doesn't really help. It's okay for you to say to your therapist, since we've been doing EMDR, I'm having some weird memories of things that I don't even know if they're real. I don't even know if they really happened. I'm having a hard time. I don't know if I can trust these. I don't know why they're coming up. Ask all those questions in therapy. When we talk about things, we don't have to be sure that they happen this way. And it's very normal for us also to have like spotty memory. Like, oh, I remember this, but I don't remember, I don't remember where my brother was or how did we, f the logistics of things. We won't remember all the details. I don't remember where we were going actually. Hmm. I felt like I was getting dressed up. Uh -huh. You know, it can be like that. It doesn't mean we're making it up. It doesn't mean it's not true. Um, we can obviously fact check with other members of our family if it's okay and safe and if someone is available. But in general, it's important to just tell our therapist where we are. And the fact that this is coming up and this is happening, we're trained to help you manage that. You don't have to figure this out on your own. You don't have to know that you have to, you know, that you trust all these memories and the sexual abuse really happened. We don't have to trust that, but we can tell her, hey, this is coming up and I don't know if I can trust it. And it's breaking me out, right? We can totally talk about that because that's a big piece. It's, it's a big piece of the shame and the blame and the guilt and the embarrassment that can come along with any sexual abuse. It also comes along with the fact that memory is so bizarre and can be repressed and then recalled and makes us question ourselves. Um, but I want you to have a place where you can talk about all that and feel okay with the discomfort and the uncertainty. You know, your therapist can really help you, can hold space for that for all those experiences because it's very normal. What you're experiencing is very normal. Um, you've been numbing and avoiding, right, your whole life. So I'm not surprised things are popping up now that we're doing EMDR. Just be patient with yourself and tell your therapist about your experience, okay? 
there was an add-on on this, the last one. It said, is it normal that traumatic events or news seem unreal at first? Yes, it can be. I think it's very normal. A lot of times there's a disbelief. Um, just like anybody, all the people who are asking these questions, we can start to think like, but that, I didn't remember that. Or why would that happen? Right? We try to make sense of the nonsensical. It's impossible. So nothing seems real. Cause we're like, why would that happen? That doesn't make sense. That seems crazy. Or like, but my mom was supposed to care for me. Why would she have hit me? Or my uncle was supposed to be our babysitter. Why would he have abused me? We can have all of these thoughts because essentially what happened doesn't make any sense. And so because of that lack of sense making, because there's no sense to be made, by the way, abusers, it doesn't make any sense. They're, they're horrible, harmful people. So it's going to seem unreal because why, right? We don't, we can't explain it. And so that's why it can feel unreal at first. Okay. Now let's move on to question number five. This next question says, hi, Katie, how can you tell if a client is dissociated in session? Well, I'll tell you, can you see it? Yes, I can. And what do you think of the term high-functioning anxiety? Can someone with this also dissociate? Yes, they can. Okay. Clients dissociate in session. It's going to differ from person to person, but some of the the like clear as day to me symptoms are freezing of the body. So usually a natural person, when we talk, we move around. We might cross, uncross our legs. We might shift, especially if we're anxious, we might fidget a lot. When we freeze we all of a sudden stop moving. Usually a patient will be like holding themselves in some way, not always, but usually. It could be a blanket or a pillow, but sometimes like a sweatshirt and they'll just freeze. They'll just stop moving their body. That's a big telltale. The second is a lack of eye contact. A patient will usually flutter in and out of making eye contact with me, talking about something, looking away, thinking, recalling, hmm, back to me. But when someone's dissociating, it's like we kind of space out. Do you, you know when you space out and it feels good? You like stare off and you're like, whew, that feels good. Dissociation can be like, and our eyes just slowly track away. And even as I call their name or say something, they don't return. You know, usually we're like thinking, you're like, oh yeah, sorry. We come back. There's no comeback. I say something and they're gone. So those are the ways that I can tell. Those are just like my prime two things that I look for. And obviously every patient is different. So a lot of times I'll ask patients ahead of time about dissociation. If they have an experience of it, I'll try to explain what it is and then ask them what they want me to do. Some people want me to place a hand on them. Some people do not. Some people want me to give them a blanket, whatever. We can talk about that and we can find ways to pull them out or help them kind of reground. I can you know, trigger things through what I say too. Like, can you feel the chair against your back or can you feel your clothes? You know, that kind of stuff. So that's what it looks like in session. Now, what do I think of the term high functioning anxiety? I think there's a lot of high functioning everything. I know people don't like to talk about functionality, but unfortunately it exists. There's spectrums and levels of difficulty that can come along with all sorts of things. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, judge anybody for saying, oh, they have walking pneumonia, right? Because they're up and out and walking about. We wouldn't say like that's bad because they're more higher functioning than someone in a hospital. It's just different levels of severity. And people with high functioning anxiety are usually just like white knuckling through life. It's like high functioning depression. We could just barely be like hanging on, but we're like doing the things we need to do and then oh, we're exhausted. And so um, I think it exists. I've seen it. I know it exists. I know people get all bent about it. It's not a judgment. There's no judgment. This is just about functioning and our ability based on the severity of our symptoms and our resilience levels, right? We all have these different variations of what makes us us. Some people are able to white knuckle through things for longer than others. 
Does that make us better or worse? No. That's just essentially like some people could be around someone with COVID and not catch it and everybody else does. Why? I don't know. Their immune system's stronger. They had more resilience built up inside of them. Maybe they were able to sleep in. They don't have little kids. They slept 12 hours that night and they beat it. I don't know. Same with mental illness, right? I don't want there to be any judgments. No different than our physical illness, mental illness. So some people have high functioning anxiety. And then can someone with this also dissociate? Yes. And this is why, because dissociation is caused by an overwhelm to our system, our nervous system, brain and body together, pretty much get overwhelmed with what's happening. We don't know what else to do. It pulls the ripcord on reality. We fly out. That's what dissociation is. And that's what triggers is that overwhelm. Dissociation is usually linked to trauma because that is in and of itself an overwhelming maxing out dysregulating experience but high functioning anxiety panic attacks they can go hand in hand and dissociation hangs out with those too because it's overwhelming to our system so anything that can cause some overwhelm can cause us to dissociate let's move on to question number six so question says how do you know whether the way i feel classifies as quote-unquote depressed or anxious or whether this is just what life feels like for everyone Maybe living life is just hard, exhausting, and having to fight to get through your days is normal. It's not, but we'll talk about this. Maybe everyone feels the pressure to perform well, to do their best every single day, just because this is the way our society works. I'm really stuck on this one. I've just started therapy, but I question whether it's even useful to treat something that might possibly not even be an illness, but simply the pains of our human existence on earth. That sounds like such a depressive depressive sentence. Something deep inside of me really does not want to believe that it is true, as it would leave me completely hopeless of ever being able to get better, to experience life differently, to breathe easier, to feel happier. But maybe I'm just weak? Am I asking for relief while everyone else is simply dealing with the stress, the fear, and the pain that inevitably comes with living? Thank you so much for everything you do. Of course, we're really in it. We're really in this depressive episode, I tell you. Now, something classifies as depression. Let's start with depression. Depression, when we feel down most of the day for most days for about two weeks and things that we used to enjoy aren't enjoyable anymore. Those are just the like the crux of it. Also changes in our appetite, changes in our sleep patterns. We can struggle to concentrate. We can feel agitated, easily irritated. Okay. Now, anxiety has a lot of the same symptoms. There's a lot of overlap between the two, surprisingly. But one of the key components of generalized anxiety disorder, or what is known as GAD, is uncontrollable worry. This means we worry and stress about all sorts of shit, and we can't stop it no matter how hard we try. It's uncontrollable, okay? Obviously, this can come, you know, with all sorts of symptoms of anxiety, like panic attacks. Um, we can struggle with concentration, changes to our sleep. We can ruminating thoughts. We can feel on edge, all that stuff, okay? So that's how we would classify those two. I have tons of videos about the two that you can look up on YouTube. You know, anxiety, Katie Morton, or depression, Katie Morton. They'll come up. You can. I even have a whole playlist about them if you want to just like binge watch, go forth. Um So that's how we classify it. And that's how it's diagnosed. And that's because someone without mental illness or without depression or anxiety does not feel those things. Think of it this way. When we have diagnostic criteria, we have to meet that criteria, meaning we're experiencing that in our life, meaning that other people don't experience that, right? Like I personally am not depressed. 
I enjoy things. I have a good time with people. I look forward to events and to situations and experiences. I sleep fine. My appetite hasn't changed. I'm not irritable. I can concentrate. I might have a down moment where I'm like bummed out or after therapy, I'm kind of like, but I'm not depressed. Life is not, life is not an experience of suffering. We will go through periods of suffering. That is normal. Life is not perfect. We can have shitty times, but not every day should not be a struggle. It shouldn't. We should feel some, most of the days. So over 50% of our time on this earth should be pretty pleasant. Now I know everybody's like, but my life has been one thing after the other and the other. We probably have depression or anxiety or some other mental illness as a result. And that's why we need extra support and treatment. And in order to quote unquote earn therapy or believe that we really need it, we just have to be a human on this earth. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be a certain level of bad or sick or struggling to warrant us getting help or to to give us the permission to take up space in therapy. You have every right to. We don't have to wait till we're terribly feeling horrible on the like at the end of what we can deal with before we reach out. We don't have to wait till we need to be hospitalized to see somebody, right? You should be able to feel happier, breathe easier. It sounds like your depression is like really heavy and making you feel hopeless. And so you really do deserve help. And what you're experiencing is not a healthy thing to experience. You're experiencing a mental illness, depression, anxiety. It sounds like depression to me, but I don't know all of your symptoms, right? So talk to your therapist, keep going. It's worth it. You're worth it. You deserve to take up that space because Life is not just us feeling like shit, white knuckling. I know it can feel like we're in the middle of a dumpster fire, but you should still be able to find some joy in your life. Like I have so many friends right now that went to like the Taylor Swift Eras tour or saw Beyonce in the Renaissance tour, right? People get so excited. Just because our world's on fire in some ways doesn't mean we can't enjoy things. That's that's the normal life experience. I know that sounds weird, but I just have to say it that way because I know people will come in the comments and be like, but everything's terrible and this is happening. But someone who's not depressed or anxious, doesn't get caught up in that stuff. We're able to acknowledge it because things can coexist. We cannot like the way that certain things are happening in our world or in our life, and we're still able to find joy in other ways. Does it mean our life is perfect? No, no one's life is perfect. But that doesn't mean that every day is a constant day of suffering. We shouldn't feel like we're in this like, I don't know, we're held in this like existential crisis forever, or we're held in this feeling like, It's just hard to do everything. We're just barely white knuckling our way through life, like high-functioning anxiety, high-functioning depression. We shouldn't feel that way. Most of our days should feel pretty fine. Doesn't have to be great, but not bad, right? So you have every right to take up that space, go to therapy, get some support. I think your depression is like coming in heavy here. There's a comment on this that I feel the same way. I feel like my problems don't matter because everyone else goes through the same thing. I also think that I'm a weak human. How do we move on from this? We have to talk about it. We have to figure out where this is coming from. Has someone told you that you're weak or that your symptoms or feelings aren't warranted or that you're too much or that you're doing this for attention? Is this like an old story we're telling ourselves today? Maybe. Let's be curious about it. Let's dig into it. Let our therapist know. We might need medication to pull that heavy weight of depression or that fog off of us. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess my life... could be better. 
And my problems do matter. You all are important. Everyone's problems are important. We don't have to, we don't have to compare to other people. Unfortunately, there's enough depression, anxiety, and struggle to go around. There's no shortage. You taking your piece of that pie and being like, I'm experiencing this does not take it from someone else. You have every right to acknowledge your problems, to admit that they're hard for you. That's all that matters. Everyone is going to have somebody they can think of who's got it worse off. That doesn't mean that your experience is lesser than. Just because we're not homeless on the street struggling to feed ourselves, it doesn't mean that then we can't feel depressed inside our home with food on the table. Those two, they don't, one doesn't take from the other. Both can actually occur simultaneously. Okay? So don't let that get in your head where you think, you know what? Other people got it worse and they're not going to therapy. You're not them. You have to choose what's best for you. And I would argue that a lot of people should be in therapy who aren't in therapy. And usually a lot of us are going to therapy because of someone who won't go to therapy. So that's just some of my two cents. But you're not a weak human. I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy off and on since I was 15. It's just the way that I am. I need support. I need someone to talk to. I need an alternate view. I need someone who doesn't know my life in and out and can give me some, you know, a different look at it. Does that make me a weak human too? I think it actually makes us strong. It's hard to reach out. It's hard to speak up. Life is stressful. If we can get some support, we should get it. Okay. Okay off of my soapbox. <laughs> Let's move on to question number seven. This question is, hi, Katie. What's the difference between having social difficulties because of social anxiety and having social difficulties because of ASD or autism spectrum disorder? And how would I differentiate between just needing to expose myself to social situations and pushing through the anxiety and knowing when it's because of autism where it's something that's not necessarily fixable? Okay. We're going to have to talk to a specialist. Now, I do not specialize in autism spectrum disorders, but I can tell you a little bit about what I do know and the differences I see between social anxiety and ASD because there are quite a few differences. Now, when we have ASD, and and these are obviously broad strokes, guys. Everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to experience this differently. I don't want you to think just because, oh, I don't have that symptom that that means anything. I'm just giving you some examples. Now, a lot of my patients and members of our community who are autistic will tell me that they find social situations to be awkward and they feel like they have to put up a front, right? We, we're mimicking behavior. Maybe we're mirroring what we're seeing with other people. We're pretending to, to act in a way that we think is socially acceptable. That's autism, okay? And that's a big piece of it, especially I know um, females tend to do it more. We tend to be better at doing that a lot. So it can go undiagnosed for a long time. We don't have to get into that. But anyways, that's just one of the pieces of that social interaction. And we can feel really exhausted and overwhelmed after being in it for a while because that's a lot of work to like put on a front and to pretend that we're, you know, mimic people's behavior and watch what people are doing. Oh, okay, okay, this is the normal thing to do, right? Oh, they're laughing. <laughs> we should laugh, right? That's exhausting. That's like, we're, we're trying to glean all the information so that we, you know, can quote unquote fit in, in that social setting. Okay. Now my patients with social anxiety would tell you that it's the worry. It's this crazy worry that like something's going to happen. That's going to be super embarrassing. It'll be really, honestly, 
I don't know if it'd be harder, but it's really hard for people with social anxiety to want to engage in social activities. Where my autistic patients will want to, they just know it's exhausting. And they're kind of, they're, there is some worry there of like embarrassing themselves. But with social anxiety, that's the biggest piece is that something could happen and I couldn't get out of there. Someone's going to say something bad. I'm going to make a fool of myself. There's this constant worry of like, oh my God, it's not going to go well. Oh my God. And then when people try to talk with us, we're not trying to mimic them. We're not trying to like, oh, huh? we don't, it, it's like we're so in our head about the concern of embarrassing ourselves that we kind of like can freeze. We can lose our train of thought. We cannot be listening when someone's talking. And you can see how there's like overlap and it can be kind of messy, but I hope that that helps you kind of tease it out. Anxiety is that uncontrollable worry. When it comes to social anxiety, the worry is all about embarrassing ourselves in public, um, people not liking us, people talking about something bad happening socially. Autism spectrum disorder is like, it's a lot for me to be out. It's not only can be overstimulating with the lights and the music and the just the sound, the noise level, but also the fact that we have to read people and mimic. If we have both of these things happening, going out is probably really exhausting and really uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. And so I, I think that finding a specialist who works with ASD is going to be key because if we can manage that in its own way, and, and that's whatever it looks like for you. I mean, I understand that like socially people expect certain things, but I, I always have a hard time with feeling like we need to like, quote unquote, fit in and be like everybody else. And like, let's work with, not against our brains, right? Your brain just works differently. Um, so if we can get, find ways to manage our ASD in a way that feels real and good for us, then I think we can look for the exposure. But we just want to make sure that we're not like fighting against ourselves in both ways, right? Because exposure might not be the best thing for you, maybe. It might be visualizations instead of actually going and doing the thing because that's so overstimulating for our ASD, right? We're just going to have to find creative ways to work with ourselves so that we're not trying to help one part of our mental illness and then, you know, triggering our ASD instead. It's like, ugh, it can be over too much, right? Um, yeah. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Now there's a comment on this that I'd like to know if it's the same for social anxiety and a personality disorder, schizoid and avoidant. Do you address the difficulties the same way in both cases? Thanks so much for everything. I think when there's, it's not that they're the same because everybody's going to be different. Depending on how it affects you, like my schizoid patients, I, I've had a few um, when I worked at the hospital and it can, it can mean that we can be very awkward in social situations and we might not even know how to be around people. And if we're avoidant, it means we don't even want to be around people. We're like, I actually prefer to be alone, right? All of that is very normal. It's part of, it's why you have those diagnoses, right? I think there's going to be a big piece of it where we have to manage our personality disorder symptoms. Again, it's almost like managing the ASD first because just exposing ourselves to it over and over isn't going to make our social anxiety better if the whole time we're freaking out that we're there because we don't like to be around people and it makes us more uncomfortable. Even if it's not anxiety driven, it's almost like these these three different uh, you know diagnoses are like working against each other, almost like exacerbating each other. And so let's kind of better understand the bigger pieces, the schizoid, the avoidant, and how we can manage what comes up for us when we engage in social situations. And that might help us see what is actually coming from the social anxiety. What is it? What are the worries? And that can be what we like, you know, visualize ourselves doing or imagine happening to try to kind of expose ourselves in a safe way. 
And then we can start going out. You know, if we have some tools, we can go out into social situations and start managing those and figuring out how it goes. Start from small, get to larger ones. Or if larger for some reason feels better because we can kind of hide off on the side and talk to one person at a time, we can do that too. But figuring out how it works for you. I guess I want to know the the overall in summation for both of these questions, my questions to my patients would be, how is this affecting you? How is your schizoid personality disorder affecting you? How is your ASD affecting you in these social situations? How do you see it presenting itself? What symptoms are the most upsetting? Because if the goal is to get into those social situations and not you know, have an anxious response, we're going to need to have some tools to manage it. And we're going to have to manage all of us, right? Not just one part of us, not just one diagnosis, like the whole experience. And we have to find a way to make it the most comfortable and best for us that it can be. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let's move on to question number eight. This one says, hi, Katie. I wanted I wanted to know about how to leave my therapist without her bursting into tears. You guys already probably know what I'm going to say. She has been under a lot of stress lately. Why do you know about that? You shouldn't know about that and has been canceling my appointments. I really need to be in counseling right now, and I feel like I'm not getting that from her. Thank you for your help. Of course, um, I know this is hard, but I'm just going to give you some tough love, and then we'll talk more about it. Your therapist's emotional situation is none of your business, and I don't mean that as like get out of her business. I'm just saying she should never have told you. This is wrong. A therapist should not be putting their own shit onto their patients, that's for our own therapy time. This is your time. That's why you're like, I really need counseling and I'm not getting that from her. I'm proud of you for acknowledging that. And if she bursts into tears, that's not your fault. You can't control her emotional reaction or response. If you want to do it in an email or or leave a voicemail, that's fine too, because she clearly is not in a situation where she should even be seeing patients. If you don't, that as a therapist, it is so important that we take care of ourselves and our shit. Otherwise, it will find its way into our sessions with our patients and that takes up their time. And that's not right. You shouldn't be paying me for my time and my expertise when I can't show up for you that way. When I'm showing up like with my own ish, I should be seeing my own therapist. Ugh, nothing makes me more mad. I'm so sorry you're dealing with this. This is not appropriate. Your therapist needs to deal with their own shit. That's why you're in therapy, right? To deal with your own shit. And they, so the best way, okay. And I know it's because you're empathic and you're caring and you're a loving person and people in your life probably really appreciate that. But when it comes to therapy, we don't have to do that. That's the beautiful part of it is that even if we are like a people pleaser and we struggle to do things just for us in therapy is the one place that we don't know enough about our therapist to even try to please them. The most we can do is like show up on time and do the homework, right? And some of those like boundaries around it keep us safe and ensure that therapy is like a healthy, loving place to be. Um, And it's actually healing for us. And so I encourage you to just email her or leave a voicemail. That's fine. You don't have to go to session because I don't want to put you in that position because they should be handling their own shit. This is really their problem, not yours. I know it's hard. I know that that boundary I just laid is really hard, but just trust me when I tell you as a therapist, I abide by that. Every therapist should. We have course after course after course, semester after semester after semester in school that just like beats it into our head that if we're having our own issues, like when my dad passed away, I didn't see patients for a while because I like couldn't, couldn't hang, couldn't help. I was too overwhelmed. Yes, it sucks when a therapist has to take a break, but they should be doing so and giving you referrals if you can't take a break. Like you said, I really need counseling right now. Like that's why I'm trying to see her. 
it's okay. Email or text, let her know. And, you know, I'm going to see somebody else because I need more consistency. Just like you told me, like, I really need to be in counseling right now. I know you're going through a hard time, um, but I, I'm going to have to see somebody else because I need to see somebody. <laughs> like, that's why I'm in counseling. You know, again, her emotional response and her-ish is not your responsibility. She needs her own therapist to work through that. Okay? And I'm so sorry. I know you're loving and caring, and but we have to hold these boundaries sometimes. It's just... That's not what's supposed to happen in therapy. Final question, question number nine says, hi, Katie, how do you maintain friendships with people with mental illness without it turning into a helping relationship? I have ended friendships simply because it was taking a toll on my mental health as I get texts and calls on suicidal ideation every month at the very least. And there were a lot of risky behaviors that I started, um, that I was starting to be influenced by. Okay, I'm, I'm proud of you for ending those relationships that they're not good for us and they're bringing us down we don't have to light ourselves on fire to keep somebody else warm, okay? Um, it was hard for me to keep visiting hospitals when the patient is more than happy to be in one. Mm, that can be hard because they don't really want to get better. And the number of hospitalizations became a badge of honor. Oop, I have trouble with that too with my BPD patients. We'll talk about this. I'm now wondering if it would have been possible for it to be a healthy friendship. Maybe yes, maybe no. Now, this all comes back to boundaries. And the reason I said my BPD patients, I've had a couple over the years who prefer to be in the hospital and like will jump the gun on wanting to go in. And they would they would say to me, I think I should go in the hospital. I've been having self-injury urges. I, I think it's better there. And it's because they like the level of attention that they get there. Remember, attention's not a bad thing. They like the level of attention that they get there. They, the stress of life and their relationships felt really intense and overwhelming. So they didn't want to experience that. And so they'd rather kind of like take a break. And my encouragement is always to try to utilize your own tools and resources so we don't have to do the taking a break, right? And going into the hospital, because that's the goal. I want you to function in your life and not feel like your hosp the hospital is like this go-to option. I want it to be a last resort. It's there, but I don't want it to be a go-to. So I've had patients who did that too and would would talk about it like, you know, almost like how many times you've been hospitalized. And I don't uh, tolerate that in my groups or in my session. I don't, you know, it's not about that. It's about like what led to that? What tools do we need? How come we ended up there? You know, trying to assist. We're supposed to be wanting to get better, but not everybody's ready. And I know that kind of sucks, especially if we're in relationships with somebody. If they are not ready to get better and we're struggling too, we may have to at least take a break from that relationship so that we don't both drown. We can't have somebody just hanging on dead weight to us while we're like doing our best to tread water, right? It can be really, really taxing and overwhelming. And that doesn't make you a bad person. And that doesn't make the other person a bad person. It just means that we can't, you know, hook ourselves and connect ourselves with someone who is just hell bent on staying sick. Because sometimes, unfortunately, we're just not ready. It takes time. I've had lots of patients I've referred out or told them to call me when they felt like they were ready to work on themselves because they just weren't there yet. There's no shame in that. We're all at different stages. And so how do you maintain a friendship with someone with a mental illness? It's with healthy boundaries. Now, if someone's calling and texting us in the middle of the night and we can't have that happening, it's okay to put your phone on do not disturb. They know how to call 911. They hopefully have a therapist. We can encourage them to get a therapist if they don't, but we can't be their emergency services. That's not anybody's role except for emergency services. So you can put your phone on do not disturb. You can silence it. 
so that you're protected. Another good boundary would be that if someone is, you know, in the hospital and we find hospitals super triggering, we don't go visit them there. We'll see them when they get out. That's okay. I know some of this may feel hurtful or you may think that it's, you know, going to offend them. But again, this isn't done because we're angry. This is done as self-preservation. This is like, I can do this, but I can't do that. I can do, you know, help you here, but not then. And that's just life. Everybody has limitations. And especially if we're struggling with our own, we have to figure out what we're able to give to a relationship. Now that might mean that that person doesn't want to be in a relationship with us because they're like, I need more. And we're like, I'm sorry, I can't give more, you know? And as much as that sucks and as uncomfortable as it is, that can be just the fact of things. Some people need more than we have to offer. And so boundaries are going to be the key piece. So figuring out, you know, what's okay and not okay for you, what's taxing. <clears throat> and so figuring out boundaries is going to be a key piece here. Figuring out how available you're going to be, how much time and energy you can offer to this relationship. Is it too much, you know, for you? Is it too triggering? I would encourage you at the very least to communicate this with them. I don't know if they have borderline personality disorder. It just feels like that to me. And I think it's because that I've had that experience with my patients. So they might be very reactive. The best way we can tell them about this is to be very kind and do a hug and roll. So like, I love you so much. I really appreciate our friendship. However, we roll away. I'm having a really tough time personally. And so I just need to take a break. I, I can't be there for you. I would love to. Again, hug, hug. I wish I could. I would love to. I just don't have any more to give. I feel like I'm drowning. That's all we have to say. They can get mad. They can say whatever they want to say. But if we do it right, if we're honest and we tell them like, it's not that I don't care for you or that I don't want to be there for you. I just, I can't, you know, we all have limitations. So communicating that I think is key so that they're not left wondering and spinning out and, you know, sending nasty texts or whatever. Let's just tell them what's going on. Um, because boundaries is what protects you, protects them and allows friendships to blossom. And that's really how we maintain friendships with people with mental illness, just like anybody. And mental illness doesn't make anything different. It just means that the boundaries might need to be more, uh, more clearly communicated. Or there might be different boundaries that need to be in place about like visiting them at the hospital or having your phone on all night and pick, being expected to pick up their texts or something like that. Um, those are just a couple of the ways to, to maintain that. Because we can have friendships and have mental illnesses, obviously. We just have to make sure that the ones that we have aren't pulling us under. Okay. Okay. Thank you all so much. Remember, use any of the links in the description. Some of my, those codes, um, like the, uh, the code Katie, K-A-T-I at BetterHelp will get you 10% off. Also, those affiliate links just really help us. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for listening and watching. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.